welcome to the podcast. My name is Tasha Gandhi and I am your host. I'm also a breast cancer surgeon. In this podcast, we use share stories and expertise to help navigate through the world of breast cancer. I'm so excited to bring you today's guest. Nazanin Direction is a professor of experimental psychopathology at Birkbeck University in London. Psychopathology looks at cognition and emotional interaction in emotional disorders such as anxiety and depression, and Naz has been doing this for many years. In recent years, however, Naz has looked specifically into the cognitive changes and emotional vulnerability in those who have been affected with a breast cancer diagnosis. She is also looking into interventional methods to help increase resilience and reduce vulnerability. It was an absolutely fascinating conversation and we explored so many areas, including how the brain works when coping with bad news, the possible reasons why there is a variation in how people cope with a cancer diagnosis, and why when we achieve a balance between the emotional and cognitive side of the brain, that perhaps unlocks the key to be able to move forward with a breast cancer diagnosis. I would highly recommend for you to listen right to the end of the episode when Nas shares some strategies that can help reduce anxiety and emotional vulnerability. I'd also recommend you go to the show notes at www.mybreastmyhealth.com forward slash episode 16 where all the links to Naz's work and the places where she can be found will be listed. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Naz Direction. Hi Naz, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. I'm I'm good today. The sun's shining and I've been doing quite a lot of housework, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> You've been quite productive. I've been quite productive considering other days, yes. Um, <laughs> I've been quite productive. I'm, I'm happy with what I've done today so far. Oh, that's good. So I wanted you, Naz, to come onto the podcast because um, I know that you are an academic specializing in anxiety and depression. And I wanted to have a conversation with you because I think your research is so vitally important and it actually resonated with me. Yes. And I know that your mission is to boost resilience and help reduce emotional vulnerability in women diagnosed with breast cancer. Would it be possible for you to tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and um, a little bit about your background? Uh, thank you. Yes, of course. As you said, yes, I'm an academic um, and I've been so for many, many years. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, so I, I've been studying the brain a lot and I've been interested in how the brain is affected in people who show signs of anxiety and depression, PTSD and so forth. And I've been interested in the neural functioning of networks that have been uh, to some part, to some major part, responsible for anxiety and depressive vulnerability. And I've tried to see, for example, why is it that some of us are prone to anxiety and depression, others not so much? What is it that some, you know, what what is about some people who um, seem to kind of being less affected, whereas there are others of us who are more vulnerable? So I've been looking at dispositions to vulnerability to um, anxiety and depression. And I've been particularly interested in 
in what we've come to call throughout our research, processing efficiency. So processing efficiency relates to the efficiency by which um, the brain carries out its functions. For example, you know, if, if I'm speaking to you now, um, how focused am I on this interview? Is my mind wandering or am I getting distracted? Can I, you know, juggle information around, if, you know, as and when it's needed? Processing efficiency is an important function of everyday life. You know, right. we use it in, you know, what the, the things that we carry out in everyday life, um, as well as um, uh, exercising it in more challenging situations, like, for example, when you go for a job interview or uh, when you're giving a lecture or um, when you're receiving bad news from your GP. Um, yes. So it, processing efficiency is an important function that I've been looking at its role in predicting anxiety and depression. And now what can we do with processing efficiency to reduce anxiety and depression? So my research has established a causal link between processing efficiency and anxiety, depression, you know, emotional vulnerability in general. Yeah. The processing efficiency of our brain plays a role in how we feel as you said and you know whether we're feeling happy or sad or yeah um, scared or you know all of those um, really strong emotions yeah and you're looking specifically at how this works in the context of those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer is that right yes so for many years I looked at just general population suffering from you know clinical levels of anxiety depression PTSD and so forth and then uh, in more recent years I moved towards yeah looking at how processing efficiency is affected in women with breast cancer and how that can possibly explain the role of you know emotional vulnerability that women with breast cancer experience there are high levels of anxiety and depressive vulnerability in this population. And what led you specifically to look into this group of people? A major factor, a major reason was my own diagnosis. Um, I was diagnosed with multifocal breast cancer back in early 2013. I was at the prime of my life. Um, my daughter was just under three years of age and I had just been awarded a fellowship, a research associate fellowship at St. John's College in Oxford. And I, yeah, I was, um, you know, ready to go places and do stuff. And a year before that, I was promoted to full professorship. So wow. life was going really well at the time. But then I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And how did you find it? Did you have a lump or... So I had a lump in my left breast and um, I thought because I was quite lumpy, um, I didn't think it was anything serious. Then weeks went past and um, I realised that like, with my um, monthly cycle, this lump was getting bigger and bigger and it wasn't going like the other lumps were going. So um, I had this two-week refill from my GP and I was diagnosed with multifocal breast cancer. So there was more than one tumour. There were quite a few tumours in the left breast. Yeah. And um, what treatment did you have? So I had a mastectomy and I had a chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And then I had um, further treatment 
on my left, on my right breast, I had a mastectomy for my right breast. So just as preventative, yeah, I had a mastectomy with reconstruction. Okay. And gosh, you, you, you would have been relatively young when you were diagnosed then. I was in my mid-30s, yes. That must have been a complete shock. It was a shock. Um, I, I, you know, you, you live with the assumption that breast cancer is a cancer for older women and no one in my family has suffered ca- breast cancer. I have a, a big extended, like my mother's side, father's side. And so it was a shock. Um, I think, well, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I, I exercise a lot. I'm, you know, I'm actually, I think I was a bit underweight actually at the time. I, you know, I was quite fit. So it, it was, it was a big shock. It, it was, yeah. I mean, for, for, for many, um, weeks afterwards, I still couldn't believe that I had actually had breast cancer. Obviously, you know, as you said, you were in the prime of your, your life, you're busy, you've had this promotion, this fellowship and uh, the professorship. And so your life must have been extremely hectic at that time. And to top it all off, you had this diagnosis, which came out of the blue completely. How did you cope with all of that going on? That's a really good question. Um, I my, my initial reaction, um, all I could say, I remember to my surgeon at the time who who's told me the diagnosis, kept saying, well, h- how long do I have left? Or Ella, my daughter, I kept saying Ella. Um, and then what happened was quite interesting. I went through a kind of a numb phase. Um, so numbness kicked in quite quickly. And I must say that numbness or depersonalization is a um, quite you know, known phenomenon of PTSD. When when you are confronted with trauma, you you become numb because it's overwhelming for the brain to process yeah. um, all of that information. You know, life threatening diagnosis and so forth. I was yeah, I was quite numb, and I immediately went through this phase of you know feeling ecstatically positive that you know the best is going to come of this, and and gradually uh, I found that I was at a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, so there were some days when I felt yeah, I'm I I I can survive this, and other days were filled with anxiety, apprehension, and uncertainty. It was quite hard, especially through chemotherapy when I was really, you know, um, I, th- I, I, that was my lowest part of my life and the chemotherapy experience wasn't good at all, actually. Um, so yeah, um, that was particularly hard. Yeah. And how long would you say you had this acute? I guess symptoms of PTSD, as as you as you said, um, it's PTSD is is a complex phenomenon. Uh, so you you know it, it can sing in the background, but you know when when you feel like you're okay, etc., and then it can hit you um, when you least expect it. So uh, it can come through experiences like intrusions and intrusive thoughts. So it, it was quite volatile, actually, until the end of treatment when I felt lower than I would have expected to. And so PTSD, I'm not, yeah, I mean, depression is also an outcome of PTSD. It, it was then when I felt that actually I'm, I'm probably quite depressed. I'm, I'm clinically um, affected by depression. Yet there were times during the day when I felt, well, no, actually, you know, it's, um, I, 
I'm able to, you know, I'm able to cope. I'm able to um, do stuff. And I was quite active, actually. Um, I tried to work as much as I could throughout my treatment. And I think that helped me a lot. My students were in contact with me. And so when I was doing that, I was, you know, all buzzing. And but when kind of the, like the reality kicked in, well, actually, um, you do have breast cancer, you are, you know, you, you are affected. And so PTSD carries with it a bag of mixed emotions. And that is what I was experiencing uh, quite, you know, um, throughout the treatment and also for, for a long time after treatment ended. Yeah. And I think that's actually not an unusual finding. And I'm sure you probably have found this in your subsequent research in that yes. um, many women at the beginning, you know, they understandably will go through a, a roller coaster of emotions. And then because their days are filled and occupied by clinic appointments and having to organize your life with your work and your home life and having, say, for example, your surgery first, and then you might have chemotherapy or radiotherapy. All these hospital appointments take over your life for about a year. But then once you stop seeing us in the clinic, that is when everything actually just hits you. Would, is that what happened to you as well? Exactly. Um, I remember through radiotherapy, uh, I I started wearing makeup and I feel really good about myself. I was thinking, oh, you know, it's all going to end and it's going to get better. And I'm look how I'm thriving through things. And of course, you are with your medical team who are so reassuring and are there with you. Um, I was lucky I had a really good medical team. And it, as, as you say, you're absolutely right. It's just as when treatment ends and then you're kind of like you're on your own in this ocean of uncertainty you have to kind of pick yourself up and people have expectations they expect that you should be back to normal and yeah. doing the normal things that you used to do and while that Maybe you know a reasonable expectation for others. You, you know, you are toast as as a, as a consequence of the treatment. You are physically and emotionally exhausted, yeah. and it's at this exhausted time when you think, well, actually, you know, I've got to go back and teach. I've got to go do, you know, carry on with my research. Loads of people are, you know, have these expectations of me, and I look so well. But you know, people used to say, well, you look really well. Well, you know, um, I I had some comments actually that that when I think back, I think, well, you know, how how could have I digested this? You know, you know, yeah. well, uh, you chemotherapy must have done you world of wonders. You know, you you, you look so your skin looks so much better. Yeah. And whilst you're kind of thinking, well, may, maybe they are right, or maybe maybe it is. And so the greater the the gap. That you know, the greater the discrepancy, the the more depressed you will feel because you cannot meet those expectations so quickly. Yeah, because that's a huge amount of pressure, isn't it? People expect yeah. you to, okay, you've had a breast cancer diagnosis, you finish your treatment, you're done with hospital. Now you uh, you have to get back to your normality. As you said, yes, exactly. Get back to that normality, and and also uh, gratitude is a big thing. Uh, so you know, you, you 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 have come to learn that many women, um, you know, that didn't make it or are not making it or yeah. have been diagnosed with secondary. Um, but uh, but you know, look at you. You've you've got a 
second chance to live. So be happy, make the most of it. And yet yeah. all you can think, can someone pull me out of this tree call? <laughs> you know, um, so yeah. So then obviously you you had this breast cancer diagnosis and you went through your own kind of process of trying to accept the diagnosis and try to move on. Um, was this then the catalyst for you to redirect your efforts, your research efforts into the breast cancer arena? Absolutely. It was um, one of, the, yeah, as a major key factor, I was trying to find myself, I was trying to get myself back on. And I, I was always known as this person who can, you know, deal with anything. And I was strong. And I had people saying to me that, you know, if, if breast cancer can affect, uh, uh, can happen to anyone, it's good this actually happened to you, because you, you could be so good in dealing. With. So um, I, you know, it, it, I began to think about it for, um, I think it was about a few months after my, uh, active treatment had ended when I kept thinking, well, you know, the, I, I met many people online, um, just like myself who had breast cancer. And I realized that actually, um, a lot of people are like me, you know, I, I'm like them. Um, and, um, these women are experiencing quite a lot of PTSD symptoms and anxiety and depression. And I thought, well, you know, psychological help actually out there is quite scarce. And, um, I thought, well, you know what, you know, I've, for the past few years, uh, prior to be diagnosed, I've been working on interventions that could target processing efficiency or the brain efficiency um, to kind of boost up, you know, the brain's power to to reduce emotional vulnerability towards resilience. So um, how how can I apply that? How can I apply the work that I've been doing, um, the research that I've published in these different populations, depression, anxious populations, so forth? How can I bring that into the breast cancer world? Because, you know, breast cancer is not, you know, being eradicated anytime soon. More even younger women are being diagnosed. And the implications of a breast cancer diagnosis on the ability to work, you know, confidence, self-esteem, huge. You know, all these sexual health issues, you know, most of these women are vulnerable. And what can I do? What can my research do to help? It was upon my return fully to work, I think it was 2015, when um, I applied for a grant and I got it and I wanted to look at how cognitive training, adaptive cognitive training could kind of build this um, uh, Im- immunity against the debilitating effects of anxiety and depression right? Um, and how uh, we can make women like myself more flexible, cognitively flexible to adapt to these New, you know, these, these changes, uh, that are ongoing, you know, the changes that we experience post breast cancer, yeah. um, into survivorship are ongoing. They don't end by active treatment ending. It's, 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 so what can I do to do that? So through a PhD student of mine, Jessica Swainson, who's now a doctor, actually, um, she earned a PhD last year. Um, we started a big line of work looking at how cognitive training could reduce anxiety and depression longer term right. in, in women with breast cancer. Do you think you obviously, you know, you embarked on this huge uh, body of work, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Do you think you embarked on all of this to 
I guess, subconsciously help yourself to cope with what you were going through? That's a really interesting question. And no one's asked me that question, actually. Um, but now that I think of it, I, I think, yes, uh, implicitly, um, I, I feel, yeah, I, I feel good and I feel safe within the work that I do for women with breast cancer. And um, if we're going to talk about it later with the Brick Centre as well, I yeah. think, yes, part of it, quite a big part of it was, was to help myself. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, very, very thought-provoking. You know, perhaps there was a subconscious thing, you know, that was ruminating in your mind because obviously – we all have to find our own strategies to cope with whatever we are going through in life. And because you, there's a, there's a head and a heart thing, isn't there? You know, you being an academic, you can, I guess, rationalize things in your head and try to work out, okay, maybe we could, I could do this, that, and the other. Yeah. But then equally at the same time, you have your emotional side, which is going through this. And perhaps subconsciously you were trying to, you know, combine the two to to find answers to these really important questions and at the same time perhaps help you go through your own process of 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 healing and accepting absolutely um i think the the, the more we talk about it now the the the, the stronger this um uh, uh, feels for me yes and through uh, sharing experiences with other women um with breast cancer and uh, building a network of women with breast cancer who uh, yeah who I can influence they influence me we learn from each other and it has helped me cope absolutely it's helped me cope quite constructively i mean it, it is it is hard i'm i'm not saying that it's it's not hard. I mean, we, you know, our, our emotional systems in the brain are quite, uh, you know, are quite fiery when they don't like to be under the influence of our cognitive systems <laughs> to, right. to be downplayed. They, they can take over, you right. know, so at times they do take over. Yeah, it's, it's helped me understand myself better. And it, it's, it's been quite instrumental, actually, in the journey since 2013. So then you set up the Brick Centre. So tell us a little bit about what that is. So the, the Brick Centre has an interesting history, actually, that I'd, I'd like to share quite briefly here. When, when, I was, when I was ill, soon after active treatment ended, my mum my was looking after me a lot, and my, uh, my, after my little daughter. And I, I discussed this idea with her. I said, I started this line of research and I really want to get into it, but I also want to establish a centre whereby I can bring women together and uh, we, can, we can have these discussions, we can have cognitive exercises, psychological exercises. I can bring my own expertise into this and communicate. And so the interesting thing was, whereas I had all these ingredients in my head, I didn't have the confidence to do it. Right. Um, and it took me a good year to build up my confidence and establish this centre, which started, you know, quite small and we just grew exponentially. We are 1,800 members now, UK women with breast cancer. That's amazing. So we, 
We are primary and secondary breast cancer. So we, about half of our members are women with secondary breast cancer and we're all in one place. We're not compartmentalized or groups, you know, the secondary group or a primary group. Um, and I strongly believe that we have learned so much from each other. So things evolved. We, you know, it, it wasn't all planned to start with. It, it's, you know, it's evolved through time. So it's October 2015 when I established that centre. And then, you know, we started having these emotion regulation exercises, weekly exercises that we do on Tuesday nights. And then we decided we want to discuss psychological issues relating to breast cancer survivorship that we do now live on Sunday nights. Right. So, so you see the we do, we do. So we have a voluntary admin team that I've kind of like picked, you know, and I've also asked women to volunteer as admins as well, should they think they can have some input into the, into the centre. And I've been successful with that. We have met up quite a few times, actually, region wise. So for example, we've had London meet up, North meet up, you know, Essex, Midlands, Man- Birmingham, Scotland meetups. And I, I must admit, our members have been really good in organising meetups. And it's so good to meet physically. And, yes. you know, a, a lot you can do online, but physically, it's all, you know, oh, yeah, I can put a face to a name now, you know. Yeah. And we've enjoyed those meetups, you know. Uh, we've, yeah, we've had lunch, dinners, um, and, you know, Women have all chipped in and yeah, it's been really good actually. So the purpose of these meet up to exchange stories and experiences? Yes, to exchange stories, experiences, um, say it how it is, basically, and uh, feel safe in this space that we have to talk. Because the group has evolved in in an educational way, um, we've we've run various projects to see how the group, how members of the group, have found resilience, have found ways to build resilience throughout the things that we've been doing on a weekly basis. And so these are also communicated in the meetups. Right. What we want to do, though, what I'd like to do is to have more structure like seminars and meetups. So we can kind of, you know, have like um, a mindfulness week, you know, yeah. somewhere where we can kind of get people together and, you know, have some activity or, you know, like seminars on different topics where people can actually get together in small groups and practice right. uh, things. We need funding for that. <laughs> You need to write more grants. <laughs> yeah, we need more grants, more funding. So far, it's been because I'm a kind of, uh, you know, neuroscience, but I'm an academic. I've liked to push the research side of things forward physically. And online, I've disseminated and translated what yes. we do within the group. But it would be good to bring this to life. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of really well placed between the two worlds, aren't you? Because um, you're obviously doing your research into anxiety, depression and processing efficiency of the brain, which in turn can, you know, when you when you get your data and your your results, you can then hopefully translate it and bring mm. it to the group. Absolutely. Um, and that was my main mission. Right. 
to be able to translate these findings, to be able to translate this research, um, because public engagement is important anyway. I mean, we, you know, sometimes academic scientists are in their labs doing stuff and then, the, you know, so, so how is this going to get translated, you know, in, in yeah. how can we make people feel empowered to do stuff on on their own to, to learn from the academic world to kind of you know um, become independent in a way in how they can apply these strategies and so forth yeah. so um, a lot of the work that we're now doing is translational and being in the position that I am I think that it's quite a useful thing because I'm up to date with the um, the research on anxiety and depression and then I'm also up to date with what's happening on that front in the breast cancer population and my team at the moment I mean I have a a student, um, PhD student, Bethany Chapman, who's um, running this longitudinal study looking at how brain changes can predict workability in women returning to work in breast, you know, women breast cancer returning to work and how our training interventions can help them, you know, stay at work um, and be efficient at what they do. Don't downgrade, you know, yeah. and because we, we lose our self-confidence upon return to work after yeah. breast cancer treatment. So it's all these things that we're trying to do, you know, that are pertinent. Um, and of course, the group has a huge influence in directing what we want to do yeah, because they can feed in. So actually, you know what? This is the, our main, this is one of the main issues we're dealing with. We need this to be seen to. What can yeah. we do to help deal with our immediate colleagues at work? Or how can we make longer term plans for going for a promotion? It's things like that. Or how can we handle our emotional upheavals with our teenagers? Or how can we talk to them about secondary breast cancer? So the brain is an amazing asset that we have. And I think that if 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 we kind of you know i don't want to say um you know, utilize it more than more than we can yeah. imagine i th- i think we're we're onto a winner basically i think i guess you have your own focus groups and the best research will come out from answering yes. the best questions that there are and the, the the pertinent questions that people have that's why we do research is to answer important questions that at the end of the day impact people's lives Absolutely. Uh, that That is the biggest thing. I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's about the impact and, you know, being having been in in the occupation that I've been I mean, from a clinical point of view is is sustaining that impact. Yeah. Um, uh, change can occur, you know, j- just as we, you know, f- do physical exercise and we, um, you know, like go on diets or so, we do see a change in weight loss. We do see a change in muscle tone and, and so forth. But then how can we keep that up? How can we help ourselves to to keep those changes sustained over time. And I think psychological research has applied to, you know, to, to change and, you know, changes brought about by in breast cancer as well. How can we in some ways teach the brain to practice resilience on an ongoing basis? Right. Okay. Um, so, and that's the challenge. Yeah, that's the challenge because I think, I'm sure you've encountered this, but people react and cope with a a cancer diagnosis um, very differently. You know, there are groups of people who um, are 
you know, they accept uh, the diagnosis and they, they try to, you know, move on with it and cope with it and manage it. And they manage it as best as they can. Of course, there'll be ups and downs and, you know, good days and bad days. But there are other, there's another group of people, there are other people who just can't cope with it. And it's completely debilitating. They can't move on. They can't go back to their new normal. And why do you think there there is, I guess, a spectrum of how people cope with such bad news? Because presumably, you know, obviously being in your sciences, there must be something to do with how the brain copes with such a change. Is that, would that be right to say? Yes, that would be absolutely right to say. And I really love your word of spectrum because we are on a spectrum of, you know, kind of normality of whatever normality is to kind of, you know, the other side. I don't want to use the word abnormal because I don't like it. Um, but we are on this spectrum. So I think um, what I'd like to do is kind of like categorize the answers into into two different streams. So one stream is so if you if you think about the different, you know, diagnoses that we get, you know, some have, you know, quite advanced cancers. And so the apprehension for them is is greater and they may feel it much harder to deal with the, the implications of having those advanced cancers if they have young families or and so forth. So they might, you know, experience greater emotional vulnerability. I'm not saying that a breast cancer diagnosis, you know, has differential impacts on people. No, but, you know, uh, for, for the majority, you know, we, we, we've got this tiny, you know, so we've got that extreme advance, but then we've got spectrum, a broad, broader spe- spectrum. And as you said, you know, some people find it, yeah, yeah, I've, I've accepted to this, I'm, you know, to take more of a um, instrumental, co- constructive approach, you know, in a problem solving approach. And they kind of say, well, yeah, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and I'm quite happy in this space. Yeah. Whereas others um, can't. So, one major um, factor that can be contributing to this is, um, you know, the different coping styles that we have adopted throughout life and the different experiences that we have had as children, as, you know, as, as adults, um, the brain has learned to become comfortable with different habits that, you know, it's exercised. So if someone, you know, classes herself as a warrior or an anxious person, then um, the her or his brain um, has a greater susceptibility to become anxious, more anxious and more distressed right. um, in stressful situations. So there is this kind of, if you'd like to say, the state that you're in and then the trait that you have. So there's an interaction between the two. If you are already classed as a, someone vulnerable um, due to the past history that you've had and you have been under chronic stress, you've suffered depression, you've been, you know, um, uh, through various kinds of situations that have made you suffer abuse, then, um, you know, your brain has become more in tuned with responding anxiously because quite rightly so you are vigilant for signs of danger what if i'm attacked again or what if i become threatened again how am i going to respond yes exactly so you have more of that type of coping which is you know which which the brain really has become tuned into because of your vulnerability 
and that's what we call trait vulnerability. I mean, if it, I always remember this example, uh, a colleague of mine once said that, you know, she, she grew up in a war zone and she had, but, but when the war ended, they had guests over and, um, that, you know, with, with her friends, she was walking down this road and suddenly some kind of a, you know, tire exploded, uh, maybe close by, but it, sounded like you know a, a bomb was being exploded suddenly some of the girls kind of you know went down on the ground because they thought well actually there's no, another shell shock coming along but the others who hadn't experienced those war war time war zone experiences were thinking well what, why are they on the floor this was just kind of you know uh, a, a car you know right. or some something just fell from somewhere why are they so scared so it's the same stimulus but different reactions yes that's interesting the brain has been attuned to those previous experiences and it's programmed to react in that yes. way so it's, it's kind of programmed um, because it wants us to survive. Yeah. You know, if you think of it, it has a survival purpose to it. You know, it's, it's hypervigilant in a way. So emotional brain systems are on are on fire, even though we, you know, to, to kind of protect us. So, you know, we can be walking on a road where, um, you know, or we can be sitting down thinking, well, actually, there's no threatening stimulus around me. But because of those past experiences, the brain is ready, super hypersensitive, ready to act quickly uh, in, in response to fear. And another thing that this kind of vigilance brings with it is, you know, so as, as a consequence of having those experiences, people um, form these templates in their working memory. So they have more worrisome thoughts, more ruminative thoughts as a consequence of those experiences as a consequence of, um, you know, the, the, you know, being vigilant for threatening stuff. So one very major characteristic of like generalized anxiety is that, you know, people say we were, we're constantly worrying, but we're not quite sure what we're worrying about. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the, this, this generalized free floating anxiety, which, you know, can eat away really, you know, from working memory, uh, you know, and processing efficiency. So imagine someone who's got lots of this kind of stuff going on in their brain and their cognitive systems, um, they'll be quite slower to react. Yeah. You know, they'll be quite slower to, you know, or more inefficient to make decisions, to perform, because these other thoughts, these other types of information have taken priority. So then those who are more able to, to cope with fear and the unknown and the uncertainty of a, a diagnosis, their brain is in a state of less hypervigilance. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's a probably best to call it like, you know, the harmony. So that they're in more in harmony. So their brain uh, structures, their brain functions are speaking to each other in a more efficient way. And they're thinking, well, yes, okay, the, yeah, this, this problem's occurred. It's life-threatening, etc. So they're weighing their options. They're weighing the different things that they will be dealing with in a more efficient 
manner. So, you know, the, the cognitive systems in the brain and the emotional systems in the brain talk to each other a lot. And the cognitive parts are trying to downregulate the, you know, the emotional systems that are firing. So sometimes when the fear is overwhelming, the, the cognitive systems kind of take a back seat. They, they're not in the driving seat. The emotional systems are, and they can be pretty strong because they are, you know, what, what we're born with, they're the, the early, the primitive parts of the brain. So the cognitive functions have evolved through time. Um, so they, they were later, you know, to develop. So it's, fear is very primitive, you know, it's very primitive emotion. So those who are, you know, f- who find themselves coping better and are not so overwhelmed by the fears that they're experiencing have managed to strike that balance a bit better. So you think of like a seesaw, you know, you've got the emotions on one end and you've got the cognitive bits on the other end. So if you tilt the seesaw, you know, you can have one overwhelming at the expense of the other. Um, and the key thing is to manage to strike the balance where you kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle. Right. So I guess that explains why people's emotional state fluctuates post-diagnosis and throughout their treatment and and beyond. And that's because on one day, your emotional state might be hypersensitive and you go into a bad place and, and then the cognitive state kind of tips it over and then you'll be okay again. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly um, the way it is. And, and you know, it's, it's nice to have little fluctuations, actually, because the brain's trying to suss it out. Yeah. I think the danger comes when you have these big changes, you know, like when the cognitive system takes over and you can become like numb about it or deny yeah. the threats deny the threat. We know like breast cancer is a threatening disease. It's a life-threatening disease and we need to be vigilant for signs of recurrence. Sure. So it's, it's about keeping the balance thinking, well, actually, you know, I've, I've got to be vigilant and I've got to also get on with my life in the best manner that I can. If I'm going to let this worrisome thought take away what I'm going to do today, they're kind of lost a day, you know. So it's, it's keeping things in harmony you know the emotion serves a purpose the cognition serves a purpose and because breast cancer is this life-threatening disease you know and it can be overwhelming especially if you are predisposed to experience emotional vulnerability it can kind of tip you know at various times and I think as researchers who want to make a difference what we need to do is to try and bring that balance back yeah so that people feel like they are coping well. Um, they're not emotionally numb, but they're not the, you know, emotionally burdened either. Yeah. And I guess perhaps, you know, one way of, uh, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but to accept change and to accept the fear and the anxiety, it's okay to kind of, you know, accept those emotions and acknowledge that they're there and adapt to that and and then I guess letting it go I mean you you you've said what I've just wanted to say actually exactly it's the, the irony is that if if you if you embrace if you accept if you become more in tune with those anxious thoughts with those fears they won't sound so loud anymore they won't be so threatening anymore but 
the more you avoid them and the more you kind of suppress them, the louder they can become and they can affect you at times when you least expect it. So as you quite, you know, poignantly say, it, it, it is about listening to them. You know, our emotions are important. Our anxiety is there to serve a purpose. If, if we didn't live with fear, we wouldn't be alive during oh, that yeah. period. Mm-hmm. Um, or as a species, know, we wouldn't have, you know, we would have become extinct by now. Absolutely. As a species, we would have become extinct. And so, it's 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 trying to embrace it, come to tunes with it, listen to it. It's there to serve a purpose, and when you do, it's not so threatening anymore. It's kind of like you begin to feel like, well, this is an an emotion of mine. Yeah, there are other emotions I have as well. You know, um, it's not just this overwhelming fear. It's justified, but it you know, I'm not going to let it take over. I'm going to kind of intervene. I'm going to keep it at bay and mm. come back to it when I need to. Yeah, I, I guess it's similar to not sweeping it underneath the carpet, right? So if you, you know, you have yeah. a problem, you sweep it under the carpet and you just, you don't want to acknowledge it or think about it. And then at, at a point where you actually have to confront it, you might realize, oh, actually it wasn't that bad after all um, exactly worrying about it and procrastinating about it and it you know it, it's just become this huge thing that actually I've completely wasted my mental energy on and whereas in fact if I had just dealt with it there and then it would have been fine exactly and and as you said procrastination is is, is a really good word actually for like worrying and ruminate rumination and you know you, uh, you 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 know the brain can get stuck in these vicious cycles of you know what if it had i should have you know so and and they can take up quite a lot of our resources our cognitive resources that could be helping us making the decisions that we've wanted to make you know they make are sluggish they delay us in doing things they they can hinder our performance so worrying you know excessive worrying excessive rumination and women have a tendency to ruminate more to to get engaged in these cycles of ruminative thinking and procrastination more what more than men more than men yes why do you think that is because women are smarter (laughs) We're more thoughtful as as, as we're more thoughtful. We because we're just great. Um, (laughs) It's interesting. We don't yet know, but I think there is some research to show that um, women are more verbal, and ruminative thinking takes more of a verbal form in in working memory in our brain systems, and the way we kind of you know approach situations. We're more self conscious, maybe from a mechanistic point of view. That is why women tend to ruminate more but you know we, we need to do more research to really try and unravel why this is the case and why is it that women are more vulnerable emotionally than men I mean it would be, yeah it would be interesting to compare both women and men you know who yeah. had breast cancer because of course although oh, you know smaller number but of course men uh, are affected by cancer as well so if rumination is more prevalent amongst women then it'll be interesting to see what happens in men well you've just given me an idea for another study <laughs> <laughs> looking at men and women ruminative thinking but both of like who've had breast cancer and um got that down <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm jossing it down actually thank you for that tip um one other thing as well is that 
men tend to underreport. Um, yes. You know, so maybe they they do experience anxiety and depression like women do, but they don't want to, you know, talk about. They it. seek help exactly that they seek help less for it. Or yeah, I mean, it's it, it. Gender effects are quite interesting within within the you know within psychological research within clinical research. So yeah, I think that'll be a good study in that actually. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Get me in the <laughs> Thank <link>. you. <laughs> It's just been an absolutely fascinating conversation, Naz. I was wondering if you could perhaps give us some simple strategies that people can implement quite easily to help to lower anxiety and perhaps increase resilience. Um, I think the simple strategies are the best ones, to be honest. Um, well, one thing that I would encourage is keep your brain active. And by active, I mean structurally active. So if, if you think about, you know, when, you know, you're exercising, you know, physically, you know, your teacher or trainer says, you know, these last minutes count. Go for it. Push yourself. Push yourself out of those boundaries. You know, push your boundaries. Challenge yourself. The key is to challenge the brain, even when you right. feel like you know you're down, and you know, just a little bit of movement can get you going. You know, you don't have to kind of solve massive problems or do massively challenging things. Small challenges to um to, to kind of like getting your brain back into the state that. It probably was prior for you to, you know, feeling fearful or depressed or down. So challenging the brain is the key thing to kind of say, well, you know, you, I've, you know, gone out of my comfort zone and, um, I've, you know, I've managed to achieve this. For me, my comfort zone managing to achieve that today was cleaning the fridge. I mean, oh, wow. you know, it was kind of, you know, <laughs> you know it was like, I was up. Like, burden on me. I said, I can't. It's too much. I'm, you know, procrastinating. Get up, do it. Oh, actually, I've managed to do it. You know, okay. keep your brain active, even if it's like little exercises um, that can make you feel like you've achieved something and then build upon that. Mindfulness is a way of challenging the brain. Structured breathing is a way of challenging the brain. It could be two minutes prior to you, you go to bed. It could be five minutes structured breathing, structured mindfulness, five minutes prior to going to bed or in the morning or whenever you think you've got, oh, I've got five minutes now, I'm going to, you know, do this for me. I'm going to engage in this exercise and I'm going to uh, feel better about myself for doing it and not get stressed about whether you're doing it right or not. You know, because sometimes I think, oh my God, I'm not doing my breathing right. I get stressed about it. Um, but no, kind of like, you know, giving yourself a pat on the shoulder, treating yourself for doing it right and loving yourself for, for making, you know, making the attempt. Oh, At the wow. same time of doing the challenge, what I would say is to go go the opposite, um, like relax and not do anything. I mean, there is so much from not doing anything that can help you. <laughs> Which can um, be quite hard for some people. Exactly. Especially if you're like me, I beat myself up if I'm not doing enough, if I haven't, if I've got five minutes, I think, well, actually, I must be doing something. Yeah, I must be productive. Can't, can't. I must be productive. Yeah. But counterintuitively, not doing anything and just being with yourself is doing something. You know, in some ways, it's doing something, but it can help you do what you want to do later more efficiently. 
I think as, as, a, as a population, we are too hard on ourselves. Um, and we criticize, you know, we, we should have, you know, we could have, and then there are expectations. But, you know, self-compassion is a big thing. And, you know, there is research to show that self-compassion protects against depression. So it's about loving yourself, treating yourself. One of my amazing treats is to make nice coffee, you know, have, have like nice coffee or in the times that I could buying a lipstick, <laughs> you know, it's a bit silly, but um, I mean, it, it does need to be a big gesture <laughs> and hugging yourself, you know, yeah. um, and, and, that and really works, you, you know, it's so dark. It's, it's so weirdly dark. Weird. <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've, you know, I've been doing it uh, uh, myself, you know, now and again, and you think, God, this is actually it does work. It is it is such an odd feeling. Yeah. So, you know, for anybody who hasn't tried it, just hug yourself and you might surprise yourself. Absolutely. And it's kind of a final thing that I I would like to say is that imagine that if if you had a physical injury, right? If you'd like, you know, cut yourself, you know, while you were chopping cucumber, you know, if there's a physical injury, what would you do? You would really be careful with it. And, yeah. you know, you would want it to heal as, as in the best way that you would possibly do. I mean, you don't start and batter it and think, well, well, why aren't you healing faster? Or why aren't you, you know, you don't question it. You just accept, accept it. it. Yeah. You accept it. It's a physical injury. It's happened. I'm going to be super nice to it, bandage it, make sure I don't, you know, take care of it. You know, you take care of it. You give it TLC. Now imagine you've been through that big breast cancer upheaval and you still got stuff that you deal with in survivorship and yeah it, it's tough you're foggy you're you know lethargic you're the loads of stuff why would we want to beat ourselves up you know yeah. we think about that as an injury and and embrace it love it you know pat it kiss it because you know that that is part of you and that needs healing you you need to heal you yeah. know, you, you need that healing. Yeah, you have to give yourself permission to do that as well. That's true. That's true. And um, a lot of us, because we've always been so busy, you yeah. know, out, outside, elsewhere, we haven't really come back into our, you know, inside, a permission to listen to yourself, permission to listen to your emotions, to your fears. Yeah, I mean, on, on a daily basis, you know, and in, in that way, you can improve quality of life, I think. Yeah. No, I think, well, honestly, such good messages that you've you've conveyed here. And it, oh. honestly, it's, it's been an amazing conversation and I've learned oh, so much. Um, and I'm sure well, I've got good tips for my future studies as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's been too wet. <laughs> Um, no, thank you so much, Naz, for all of your, you know, for all of your insights, for all of your amazing advice. And I will leave all of these tips and tricks and advice in the show notes for this particular episode. And finally, if people want to find you, where can they go? Well, I, I would like to propose that you find me on Facebook, the Brick Center on Facebook, and you can message the Brick Center and I will get back to you. If you're not a Facebook 
person and you don't have Facebook, you can always email me and I can give you my email address. Great. I'll put that um, in the show notes as well. Yes. You can email me or through the Brick Centre, wh- whichever that's easier, because some people are not on Facebook. Some people prefer email. You know, yeah. it's absolutely fine. Fantastic. And uh, the Brick Centre is um, spelled B-R-I-C. That's right. Fantastic. Yes, the BRIC centres, B-R-I-C. And then I can kind of, you know, if if you want to know more about the BRIC centre and our blog, Panning for Gold, I can direct you to the different resources and different things if if you'd like that. So um, that is like a good starting point to get in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, Naz, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. And um, uh, I'm sure we'll keep in touch and I'll catch up with you soon. Thank you so much. It's It's been amazing. I'm very honoured to, uh, to have been asked and I'm very thankful. Thank you for considering me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did recording it. You can find the Brick Facebook public page at www.facebook.com forward slash resilience in breast cancer The Brick Centre's Panning for Gold blog is found at bcresiliencecentre.blogspot.com and you can also follow uh, the Brick Centre on Twitter at bc underscore resilience. You can also get in touch with Naz at her email which is n.direction at bbk.ac.uk and direction is spelt D-E-R-A-K-H-S-H-A-N and I will leave all of these links in the show notes which you can find at mybreastmyhealth.com forward slash episode 16. If you've enjoyed this episode and you have been enjoying the podcast so far, I'd be really grateful if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. And that would really mean a huge deal to me because by doing so, you can actually increase the uh, discoverability of the show. And so hopefully it can help more people. So once again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well and staying safe. And I will see you in the next episode. Take care. Bye.